Hi, and welcome to WWD Voices. My name is Arthur Zachwitz, and today we have a special guest, Brianne uh, West, who's the founder of Ethique, and she'll be interviewed by WWD sustainability reporter uh, Kaylee Rossage. Hi there, this is Kaylee Rossage, the sustainability editor at WWD. I'm here with Brianne West, the founder and CEO of Atik, and we'll be speaking on her founder's journey and the greater trials and celebrations of an eco business. So thanks so much for joining us. Brianne, how are you me. doing? Great, thank you. So um, we'll, we'll jump right into it. Um, you've been in business since 2012 and you've not shied away from, from the struggles and the, and the joys behind founding your own business. Um, I'd love to kind of start with, you know, why did you found Atik and what differentiates your business um, ethic from others today? Well, I mean, I started the company back in 2012 when I was a naive, idealistic university student. I started it in Christchurch in New Zealand and I wanted to rid the world of plastic bottles. And I believe that the way businesses are run generally nowadays is unethical and exploitative. So I wanted to see if it was not only possible to create a genuinely sustainable product that displaced more wasteful alternatives, but also the company was operated in a way that was much more ethical, fair and kind to everybody involved from supply chain through to end use. Um, and that, that sort of ethos has carried on throughout the entirety of Atik. So I started with obviously bars of product that are made out of uh, fair trade ingredients that are all biodegradable, vegan, cruelty free, all of those things you sort of expect these days. But they are also packaged in home compostable packaging. So there is absolutely no consumer waste. We don't have to worry about trying to recycle stuff. And we also have all of the sort of the bolt-on ethics, if you like. So we're living wage certified. We ensure that we pay a, a like a, a fair trade price, if you like, for our ingredients. So we work directly with our suppliers to ensure that they're paid fairly. Um, and then we have a big charitable aspect of the brand as well. So we just try and consider as much as possible. And I'm not saying we're perfect because it's not possible, but we just try and do as much good as possible because all businesses have an impact and we want to have a good impact, not a bad one. And you mentioned doing right by your suppliers. So I'd love to borrow this from a blog post that I saw on the, the company's page um, about being a kind CEO um, and being kind to your suppliers. You know, why is this so important to you? Well, it's, it seems to me that a lot of businesses treat their supply chains as a, a second thought. You know, uh, they don't consider who manufactures their products or who makes the ingredients that go into a product. And I mean, that's... It's most infamous, I suppose, in the fashion industry and in who made your clothes, right? But that is apparent in, in every industry. There is horrendous supply chain practices. And to be a kind, uh, conscious, fair company, you have to consider the suppliers of our ingredients. So we have a direct trade program where we work directly with farming cooperatives and producers around the world. So, for example, in Samoa, we source all of our coconut oil. We've done that since 2015, back when I was a tiny baby, baby company. Um, and it just means that you not only pay them a price that's well above market, you also have an insight into whether you can help them elsewhere, whether you can help provide, I don't know, whether it's educational machinery in some instances to help them make more, um, or even networks and connections into selling their product elsewhere, which is what we've helped them with. And it's just a much nicer relationship. So not only it, it's non-exploitative, which I would argue most supply chains are, and it's also helping raise the standard of living and 
therefore the protection of the environment in countries outside where we directly affect if that makes sense no it makes complete sense and it's it, you have to wonder why more um, business leaders aren't doing what you do what um, you know uh, Patagonia's founder has been doing it, it's it really speaks to you know your values um, and you know as we see sustainability continue to, to mainstream um, we're seeing things like b corp status grow in popularity in fact i was writing a story on another company that um you know they were so excited they were announcing that status you know why was something that b corp uh why was b corp also something that you pursued and would you still recommend today um pursuing it if you know for any founders out there listening b corp was i think we first certified back in 2015, and I wanted to do it because I wanted it to provide a, a proper framework, if you like, as we built this company into one that was genuinely ethical, just to make sure we were ticking as many boxes as possible. And I really liked it for that purpose, and it showed us we were on the right track. Uh, it helped us develop the charitable program, for example, in, in a meaningful amount, um, and I liked it for that purpose. Um, I think, for me, some of the companies that have been certified recently, I don't think are filling the the idea that business is a force for good. I think it's great that lots of companies are trying, <clears throat> but I think there needs to be a little bit, and I know that they're working on this, whereas, you know, instead of businesses can't become a B Corp simply by doing really well in one category, they've got to do it across the swathe of categories. And I think that's how some businesses have manage to attain a standard and therefore be a business as a force for good when I don't really think they are. Um, and again, it's great that these businesses want to do better. And I do recommend uh, B Corp certification for businesses because it's a wonderful framework to try and again tick those boxes to make sure you're doing as well as you can. Um, I think as they've grown, it's um, obviously it's got a little bit harder to try and fit as many businesses in that B Corp box as possible. And I know they're looking to to change that, and make it that a little bit harder, which I think is only a good thing for the for all industries. I like that you said something, you know, a bit controversial because this is a podcast, right, about, you know, you can't just lead in one area. And I see that time and time again in all the reports that I look at, whether it be, you know, um, you know, the remake report, it's like, you know, so-and-so isn't doing well on on human rights, but they're doing great on carbon. So it's like, it's really refreshing to hear you say that because I think, I think it's absolutely true. It's like across the board, you know, look holistically at the big picture. Um, and you mentioned the, the foundation, the which is no with, small. <laughs> Go ahead. That's the key with, with B Corp, just to add to that. That's the key is it's wonderful that businesses are making change, right? And I love that. And I love that they're working to become a B Corp. But to be a B Corp, to be a force for good, you have to be doing better not not perfectly, but better across the board, not just in one or two categories. And that's the changes they're making. And I think that is what's going to really cement consumer faith in that. Because I think some of the certifications recently have knocked some of some of consumers' belief in the certification. And that's a real shame in general. I feel like the we could talk on and on about this, but I do want to uh, latch on to one other thing you mentioned. Um, uh, no small feat, um, the Atik Foundation, which you launched earlier this year, um, I think it's 10 million to um, a handful of organizations. Um, I, I'd love to hear more about that since you mentioned it. I was very excited about the Tech Foundation for, I don't know, five years or so. Um, so going back to the B Corp, when we, when I was trying to figure out how much we should donate, uh, the B Corp gold standard is 2% of sales or 20% of uh, profit. Now, to give that, give you some perspective, the average business is 1% of profit. So it's very different numbers. But what is really important about philanthropy is doing it in a way that actually makes change. And what I didn't really want to do was just give money to organisations and hope 
that it was doing good. And look, the vast majority of nonprofits, of course, are doing good, but I wanted to know for certain. And I wanted to have as much impact as possible with what is, you know, globally speaking, not a large amount of money. So far, we've donated two million. Um, so we worked with some really wonderful advisors to create a foundation that does donate to a couple of um, charities, but we only work with a very select few because the more you spread your money out, the less effective it is. And we've uh, narrowed it down to sort of ocean conservation. But we also have a fellowship program where we work with women around the world who have got big ideas that are scalable to solve pressing environmental problems. And that is the piece that's going to be really effective. And that's something I'm very excited about. So that sounds a bit different. Um, anything more you can share about those, um, you know, any shout outs to any of the, the ocean conservation efforts or, or what personally drew you to that mission? Obviously, eliminate plastic is kind of the overriding goal, right? Ocean conservation for me has been the number one passion. Well, environmentalism has always been my number one passion, but ocean conservation in particular, um, I scuba dive. I just think our oceans are the most magical, entrancing, wonderful place. And the more uh, the more people who went out there and enjoyed them, the better, because then they would want to protect them. And But also, I think a lot of the time we underestimate how important oceanic health is to human health. And we know that about 70% of our oxygen comes from the ocean. It doesn't come from rainforest. But a lot of our environmental protections are dedicated to land protections, and it's the wrong way around. We need to protect more of our oceans. I'm a big believer in, a big supporter of 30 by 30, which is protecting 30% of our oceans by 2030. And we need to get a wriggle on if we're going to do that. And we need to do that if we want to protect global health and our global environment. So ocean conservation is enormously critical. And that's that's why we eventually landed there. And um, we recently passed the um, International Coastal Cleanup Day on September 17th. So that's another, um, you know, tie-in. Um, and to talk more about, uh, you know, packaging waste, it's just um, so substantial. And, and like you said, measuring some of those, um, you know, looking at some of those metrics, it's like, you know, we need to do much better, much faster. Um, what's your take on on big CPG brands trying now to take you know responsibility for this and to explore zero waste packaging um is this enough uh why or why not i think they have got a mammoth job ahead of them right that you have got to shoehorn sustainability into massive massive ships that have been rubbing this way their whole lives and now they've got to turn around and spin that way and become sustainable and they're not going to do it overnight and i think that if they're making genuine strides we should applaud them for that and the likes of unilever are making some interesting changes they're not perfect they're uh working hard to do a lot better right um unfortunately there is that much greenwashing and nonsense in the industry you know um people now say oh we all our products are recyclable so that's wonderful it's not because less than nine percent of all plastic ever made is recycled regardless of whether your product is recyclable or not recycling isn't working because we don't have the infrastructure for it what we need to do is stop making virgin plastic so when you see CPGs releasing shampoo bars that are packaged in zero waste packaging, which is a term I don't like because there's no such thing as zero waste products because of all the, nobody counts the waste in the supply chain, but um, zero percent consumer waste, if you like, I suppose, uh, that's a good thing uh, as long as they do it right. So as long as they explain to the consumer what to do with it at the end of their life, as long as they looked into the entire, so are the glues and those sorts of things, are they actually, if they're saying they're compostable, are they actually? I'm noticing a lot of shampoo bars don't say they're compostable, they say recyclable. And paper recycling is a little bit better than plastic. So that's still a step in the right direction. So there is a whole lot more work that needs to go into this area. 
But the fact that consumer consumer demand is so fierce for better better packaging and better products for the planet that they're beginning to recognize this and actually release these products. And that's enormously exciting. I think the soundbite there was there's no such thing as zero waste products for any listeners here. It's it's so crucial that, um, as you pointed it back again to where we started this conversation, the supply chain, right? All that waste that's just out of sight, out of mind. Um, so important. Um, but let's break down the shampoo bars because I know that um, you know, product efficacy is also a conversation in um, in the materials space in fashion, right? About you know, mushroom leather, but does it perform? Um, so, so zeroing in on uh, you know, no pun intended, to shampoo bars, um, what separates the product efficacy in the world of solid shampoos? Um, you know, where do you differentiate? Um, and then we'll talk about end of life too. Sure. So a shampoo bar is exactly like what you would get in a bottle of liquid shampoo or conditioner, well, conditioner bar. Uh, it is just none of the water. It, it really is that simple. People um, get wound up on the fact that they might be soaked and therefore they're not very good, they're very drying, and that's true, soap is not good for your hair. But a, a proper shampoo bar, and most of the ones you get on the shelves now are proper shampoo bars, they are exactly like what you get in a salon quality product, just without the water. Um, so they foam exactly the same, they have the same conditioning ingredients, they have the same lathering agents. Uh, so there is no difference in terms of, you know, you can't say a blanket rule that shampoo bars are not good for your hair because liquid shampoos are what you're supposed to use. You can't say that. Um, obviously, some shampoo bars will suit some people and some will suit others. But in terms of efficacy across the board, shampoo bars and bottled shampoo, they match. And I have an awful lot of reviews on our website that say uh, this is the best shampoo we've ever used. It's better than liquid shampoo. So you really just need to find a bar that suits you. And this is a kind of a question that just popped up, but is there a divide also on foam versus no foam? Like, should it lather? Like, or does it does it have to? Or is it fine if it doesn't? It's just a different. It's a different way just to use shampoo. I mean, obviously, um, and I've used them before, and but I've had some that are more foamy, others are not. So I'm just curious. Like, does it have to? <laughs> it's something you're taught as a consumer that foam equals clean and it doesn't foam does a couple of things it helps it helps lift a bit of the dirt and the oil off your scalp and, and out sort of off your hair shaft a wee bit um but it's what you're trained into into feeling means clean more than anything products that are designed to clean without foam are just as effective and lots of people certainly with curly hair for example they will use cleansing conditions which typically don't foam uh, so no, foam doesn't equal clean. It does help it spread through your scalp and down your hair. I personally prefer a foaming shampoo, but they are not necessarily drying at all. Um, it's all in how it's formulated. So it's entirely up to you whether you prefer it or you don't. I personally don't like non-foaming, but as you can see, my hair is dead straight. Good to know. Um, and, you know, throughout this conversation, I think um, specifics, uh, the wording that you use is so important. The language is so important. Um, I think I caught this in another blog post, perhaps. But you know, why did you make the jump um, from you know quote zero waste brand to uh, quote regenerative brand? Um, what does this mean to you? Uh, zero waste began to feel like we were m misleading our consumers, and we never intended that way. What we meant when we said it was that it was zero waste to the consumer. But of course. It we shouldn't say that because we weren't counting for the waste that's in our supply chain. And of course there is because it's a possibility. I mean, waste that's very hard is the carbon emissions that are released when you ship a product to a consumer. That's not what the zero waste for consumers means. 
but I didn't want to claim something that wasn't 100% accurate. I didn't want to be greenwashy. But when we move to regenerative, to me, that's a more positive outfacing statement anyway. It's about more than just removing waste. It's about giving so much more back. Uh, regenerative simply means, if you like, sustainability on steroids. So instead of just maintaining the status quo, which is what sustainability is, it's giving more back than we ever took from the planet. So it's planting more trees than our packaging is ever deforested. But it's it's that's simplifying it. You know, it's a lot more than that. Regenerative is about regenerating our planet and making it a better place than it was before a tech existed. And that's a big, big goal. And I'm certainly not saying that we are going to do that on our own at all. But I think the more businesses that work towards being regenerative, that would be a massive shift for people and planet and would be enormously uh helpful in, in solving so many of the problems that we face. What are the, um, I guess, voluntary commitments that um, underpin being regenerative, um, right? We see carbon emissions reduction targets, but um, a lot of these statements are voluntary. And I'm wondering what the comparison um, or equivalent would be, um, like you said, to be the the uh, regenerative brand that you that you hope to be, that you dream to be, that others in the industry or in fashion could also um, use as a baseline. Good question. It's going a little bit further, I suppose, in general. So to use an example would be our products and packaging in general. By its very definition, it's a much less it's much lower impact product just because you're removing the water. So the shipping impact is lower and therefore there's less carbon emissions simply due to weight. There is the least carbon emissions in the packaging itself and there's lower carbon emissions in the um, per use. So that, um, I guess, regenerative comes into sections. It's product and processes. So products that you make and then your how you operate your company. <clears throat> there is things like, so we not only offset our so we reduced our carbon emissions by 60% from 2018 to 2020 because offsets are not a silver bullet. But um, for what we cannot offset, uh, what we cannot minimise, we will offset. And we offset it uh, well well more than we actually emit. And we do that through investment in renewable energy technologies and, and carbon capture tech and those sorts of things. And then in addition to that, because that cannot possibly capture all the damage that a business will do, we also have what we call the Atik Forest. And that's working with um, an organisation called the Eden Reforestation Projects, who are one of my favourite organisations in the world, who will, around the world, in about, I think it's 14 different countries at the moment, they plant trees native to that area in areas that have been ravaged by humans, by and large, and they work with and employ and pay locals and local communities to not only plant those trees, but they also create forest guardians who look after those trees long term. So they're not only um, rehabilitating the land, but they're also working with communities to ensure that they have economic empowerment. And that is an amazing business model. Uh, so those are the sorts of things that, you know, we, we talk about it so consumers know about it, but it's certainly not an aspect of being sustainable because it's going above and beyond. So when you are trying to go from if you're trying even if you're just trying to be a sustainable company, you need to have a look at the damage that you're doing. And instead of just saying, okay, we'll plant a tree for every order, which is irrelevant and not even really sustainable. You need to think how much damage that order actually do and how do I somehow outweigh that? And then how do I go one better? And how do I prevent that damage happening in the first place? So measure it by damage done. Um, no, it's it's a great um, way to think about it and um, to you know have another um, organization um, on my radar is great. Um, I'll definitely look into that. Um, as we're kind of uh, approaching time here, I wanted to ask one last question um, that I often frame to um, 
and within interviews, um, you know, anything else you want to add or go back to or reiterate from our conversation? And just really that I think business is the way that we can solve so many of our social and environmental problems. And every business can do better. There is no business out there that's perfect, although I think Patagonia is having a good go at it. Um, every, every single one of us can implement some kind of regenerative or sustainable policy. And the time is now because we are running out of time to actually start rehabilitating some of the environments that we have damaged that are critical for Earth's ecosystem. And it doesn't need to be scary. You can approach it a step at a time and there will be people within every organisation who are interested in doing that. So talk to the team, talk to the people around you and just start moving in one direction, perhaps pick something small to start with, perhaps pick measuring your carbon emissions because there's a multitude of tools and consultants to help you do that. And then perhaps once you've done that, move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But something that I note a lot of businesses do actually is it's in the too hard basket because they think that consumers expect them to be perfect, but it's not true. Consumers look at perfection or companies claiming to be perfect with suspicion. If you are 100% well, 100% honest and transparent with your consumers and say, hey, we're on this journey, this is what we're doing, this is we're not doing very well, but we are working on it, they are going to respect you. It is a proven fact that companies that have social and environmental policies that are transparent are vastly more successful, more profitable, and have greater loyalty from their consumers. So not only is it the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do for the business. An excellent call to action. Um, thank you, Brianne, for your time today. And um, thank you, listeners. Stay tuned for more and we'll, we'll chat soon. Thank you for having me.